Now, Mark chapter 14, um, Jesus, the, the, the gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel account that we have of the ministry of Jesus. It's the fast-paced one. We see the Greek word euthus, which is immediately happening a lot, then immediately, immediately, immediately. And then all of a sudden we see, it's almost like when you're flying on a plane, you're going long distance, and, and it feels like it's moving quickly, and you noticeably ch- like sense that they're starting to slow down to prepare to land the plane. And that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 14. There's a lot happening in Mark 14. At the beginning of Mark 14, Jesus is anointed with oil. One of his disciples, in another gospel account, it tells us it's Judas, is upset because of the year's salary that it's worth, that oil, being poured out over the head of Jesus to anoint him and to prepare him for his burial and for his death. Um, The disciple Judas then we see goes and he betrays Jesus by selling him out for some silver and then we see them coming to the table to celebrate the Passover. Last week we talked about how Jesus perseveres in the face of betrayal and how he does so by dependence on the Father. We're gonna continue that narrative in that same meal. Previously to where we're picking up today, Jesus essentially told Judas that hey, you are the one that's going to betray me in a way that is, that is unforgivable. Woe to you have, that you have ever been born. All of them betray him. All the disciples do. And then we see something interesting. He transitions to what we refer to as the Lord's Supper to communion. Mind you, Judas is still there. Judas had already betrayed Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus washes his disciples' feet including Judas, including Peter, including James and John. He humbly serves his disciples. And so I want you to understand this meal isn't a lighthearted, laid-back, no-biggie type meal. It's your worst Thanksgiving meal multiplied by infinity. Yet he sits down to eat with his disciples, going through the Lord's Supper. But at the time, it's a Passover meal, and, and we see how Jesus positions himself and changes the narrative of the Passover by he himself declaring to be the Passover lamb. And so I've done something I really try not to do. Those of you who know me know I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. And so alliteration is literally like a class there. I try to keep it around once or twice a year to alliterate, uh, but... I want to alliterate so that we have some handlebars to enjoy the Lord's Supper. Here at Christ Community Church, if you're visiting with us, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, not out of religion, but out of relationship and trust and dependence and response. And so we're going to unpack that for you. And so I broke one of my personal pride rules of alliterating, and I alliterated. So here you go. The Lord's Supper reveals, reminds, and restores our hope in Jesus. Notice I didn't say my hope or uh, you, your hope, our. The Lord's Supper is a communal thing, not an individual thing. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us. It is a restoration. It is a revelation of the reality of who God is and who we are. The Passover meal was a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people to deliver them from the oppression of slavery in Egypt. So pick up with me in verse 22. This is right after he had told Judas that, is it you that's going to betray me? Acknowledging that, yes, it's you. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. 
And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he took the bread and blessed it. That's, that's part of the Passover ritual. Part of it, the, the leader of the Passover, usually the head of the family, would lead the family through the meal because it wasn't just, now it's appetizers. Here's the main course, on to dessert. Anyone want a nightcap? It wasn't like that. It was intentional, meaningful, and purposeful on the journey. The bread became the bread of Jesus' affliction, of his suffering. There are four cups during the Passover. The first cup was for the rescue from Egypt. The second was freedom from slavery. The third was redemption by God's divine power. And number four was renewed relationship with God. Most scholars agree that this cup that he was giving thanks to and sharing was indeed the third cup of redemption of God's divine power, by God's divine power. And so as he raised the cup, he redefined it for the ultimate redemption by God's power for God's people. He took the cup of wine. Wine, wasn't, um, wine was a staple in the Passover meal. It was typically a bitter-flavored wine. It wasn't some sweet wine. It was a bitter-tasting, bitter wine. And that bitterness was a reminder of God's sustenance, but the urgency that God had on his people as they were delivered and released from bondage and slavery. Wine throughout the, throughout the scriptures talks about as a celebratory drink, as something utilized to bring remembrance, to bring celebration, to bring comfort. The cup of bread, unleavened bread, the absence of sin. Jesus then adapts the absence of sin and the cup of substance and bitter wine, which is symbolizing of the Passover blood, but ultimately declaring it is now his blood who is the Passover lamb to his disciples. So he, he, he strayed from script. Some of you here are like me. You can go off script when Gatlin said, um, hey, I'm going to do something I didn't tell Casey about. Some of you for me were like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen you know, you pulled out your just-in-case paper sack to breathe into because you're like, you're, it's, it's out of normal for me. I was like, sweet, let's see what he does. If it's really, really bad, I reprimand him and just get up here and fix it. But if it's really good, it's like, praise God. But some of you are like, change. Oh, no, no, not change. Please don't change. Jesus doesn't just change. He upends the very tradition and shows after hundreds of years the transition from what was to what has been promised to the fulfillment of that promise, namely himself. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The blood of Christ, the body of Christ covers us so that as the spirit of judgment, the spirit of death descends to bring judgment on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't destroy and demand payment, but rather it covers and delivers now, mind you, this is in the presence of the guy who already sold him out for 30 silver pieces. It's in the presence of the one that would betray him verbally, from the ones that would split when trouble comes. He's giving them this. None of them are sitting in a deserving posture at this point. Jesus doesn't serve and die and rise for those who deserve it. He does it for his enemies. He gives himself for his enemies out of obedience to his Father. 
And he makes this oath. He says, truly I say to you all, not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Unfortunately today, oaths don't mean anything to most people. It's more based on convenience than promise. There's no substance behind it. We see that in marriage, even within the church. Nearly half the marriages that happen in the church end in divorce. Oaths are the reasons why some of our good friends who are attorneys are in business, because people break their word. I don't know about you, I've broken mine. I'm, I'm not very great at oath-keeping at times. Sometimes, by God's grace, I sustain, but it's easy to break oaths today. It's culturally acceptable, by and large. But Jesus makes this oath, and in that time and space, when someone makes an oath, it's a life-or-death promise. He says, I will not taste again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And an oath, basically, of the cup, drinking of the wine, is a covenant of blood, saying, essentially, if I should break this, then split me in half, and let me break open and bleed out. Blood for blood, which we see happens later to Judas. I want to pause here for a moment because I think it's easy for us to focus either on the oaths that others have broken towards us or maybe focus so much on our broken oaths to others. And the challenge is, is we are waiting for that person who's broken their oath or looking for ways for ourselves to fix that oath. The declaration of Christ saying, this is my body, this is my blood, is an indictment and a declaration of liberty that you and they are unable to restore a broken oath. It's impossible. The consequence of a broken oath is death. The oath of mankind created by their creator to honor and worship and serve and obey is impossible to keep because of the advent of sin in the garden. And so one of the reasons we're all held prisoner at times by our own failure and the failure of others is due to the fact that we're waiting for ourselves or someone else to restore or redeem or to fix the deathly broken oath. What Jesus is declaring here is there's no other hope in other places than besides me for any of, that thing to, any of those things to be made right. There's only Jesus for the restoration of the broken covenants. Who are you waiting for to make things right? Yourself? Some of you walk in here with the burden of your sin upon yourselves, and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know that he is faithful, that he keeps his promises, that he forgives those who are broken in sin, who come with a, a humble spirit. He restores. Are you banking on yourself to try harder? To do better? To form better habits, and then you'll use Christ as some sort of training wheel rather than the only hope we have? You're waiting for that other person to make things right with you, to repay the debt that they owe, 
then I want to remind you to come to the table and be reminded of the ultimate payment of that death that sets all wrong things right. We are all oath breakers, and we've all had oaths with us broken. Our hope isn't for another person or ourselves to get our act together. Our hope is to come humbly to the table to remember that the oaths have been kept and the oaths have been restored through Christ. When we start seeing through that lens, then the idea of forgiveness isn't as offensive except for when we see the cross. And we're aware of the cost of that redemption and forgiveness that's been given through God's only son, Jesus, who was without sin. Verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. My guess, Gatlin, would be that Jesus, as the leader of the meal, would declare that they sing the Halal, which is a song of hallelujah, which ranges from Psalm 113 to 118 and is emphasized at the crescendo at Psalm 136. This great celebration of praise and worship and hallelujah to God, the deliverer. But you have to wonder at this point if the disciples were thinking there is a shift that's taken place out of what we declared and what we've consumed. Judas himself consumed of the bread and drank of the cup. There's no evidence that Judas abstained. But he partook of this covenant. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus taking his disciples, as we'll see unfolding later in the gospel, to pray, to be captured, to be arrested, to be brutalized, to be put to death, to be the loneliest man that's ever existed as God removed his presence and bore out his anger towards sin on Jesus the Messiah becoming substitute, becoming sin. So they sung their hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For as it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Once again, very clearly saying to them, all of you will betray me. They saw what happened with Judas. They saw the interaction, the exchange. John records it as if, uh, as Jesus telling him to go and do what you've been called to do, he took from the cup and then he took off and went to go tell the authorities. The disciple, it wasn't a hidden side, side, uh, you know, side convo. It probably was somewhat of a relief for Jesus to directly accuse and confront to an extent Judas. And again, I don't want to add to the scripture, but so when Jesus says this, Here's my body, here's my blood, you're all going to betray me, all of you. And he quotes from the Old Testament, Zechariah, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's saying, I will be struck, you guys will scatter, but I will rise again. He, he told them that in Mark chapter 8. He was declaring what was to be. They didn't like the plan, they wanted their own plan, they wanted their own kingdom, they wanted their own source of righteousness, they wanted to ride his coattails to a place of power, but Jesus was not a butler to serve their desires, Jesus was a suffering servant king who came to pay for that which we can never pay for. He shares the meal and immediately they fail, as we see the narrative unravel. 
You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. You ever felt that way? You ever been that person that's like, I'm more loyal. I would never do that. He might do it, she might do it, they might do it, not me. Peter's like, look, all these suckers, can't trust them. Probably wise. Probably wise. Not trustworthy. However, your right-hand man, your body man, I'm in, man. I don't want to project myself onto Peter. Because this is pre-resurrection. They were hoping in all that, but they still didn't quite get it. And in my humanity, I would feel even more offended by what he said, knowing what he would do. But look how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, not tomorrow, not in a week, in a few hours, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I don't know if any of you have roosters. We are near Magnolia. So some of you might actually have roosters. If you have really nice eggs, please let me know. Side note. Roosters don't just crow once. Usually they crow quite frequently. And typically they're separated by an automated God-given snooze button. They crow. There's a delay. They crow. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, before the second crow of this rooster, you're, you're going to betray me. You. Be careful how you posture yourself coming to the table once you leave the table. The table isn't about you. It's about God. The table is about Jesus doing for you what you could not. The table is about us, his gathered people, his body, his bride, broken and needy, coming and declaring our need for God. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All of them, Judas included. I think we missed those little notes that, you know, Peter steps up and he's like, hey, these guys might, I won't. Jesus is like, no, dude, you will very quickly deny me. And then the rest of the disciples are like, no, we won't. We're not, they might, I'm not. I mean, at that point, when you drop the mic and just walk off on these guys, it doesn't say that Jesus even addresses it further. He just says, no, I, I want you to be aware. I want you to know what will happen. Their hope is not based upon their faithfulness because in the most, in the most trying moment of the earthly life of Jesus, he was betrayed by all and forsaken by his father because of our sin. So at this point, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's confronted and warned Judas. He's declared that he is the ultimate Passover meal. He is the Passover lamb. He is the deliverer of Israel. He is the one to bring new life. He is the only hope for the sinner. He is the only hope for the Jew and for the Gentile. He is the only hope. Declaring these things, inviting them to these things, and then telling them directly that you all will, will fail. You're going to fail. You're not going to be able to keep it. 
And if you, if you haven't read the story, if you're new to the faith, then I want you to take one of the Bibles on our chairs. If you don't have one that's easy to read, if you have one that's written in Old English and it's hard for you to, to understand, please take one of ours. See, I, I warned us of this last week, and I want to remind us of this this week. Thank God that the faithfulness of Jesus is not based upon our faithfulness or of the disciples' faithfulness. Jesus is faithful because he's obeying the commands of the Father. Jesus is faithful because he understands his purpose. Jesus is faithful, not based upon the faithfulness of those around him, but in spite of it, and at times because of it. Their unfaithfulness bolsters his faithfulness. And for you husbands and dads who lead your family, your call to lead is not one that you either believe into being or don't believe into being. I've said this before. You're either a good head of your family or a bad head of your family, but you are the head of the family, according to the Scriptures. Some of you are bobbleheads, Whatever motion happens, you just kind of go along with it. But you are the head of the family, good or not good, faithful or unfaithful. And let me tell you this. If you start living into that biblical reality and start owning that responsibility, you will realize your profound need for Jesus goes beyond your own sin. It goes to the overseeing and protection and encouragement of your family. For you single mamas who are running this race alone, you're taking on both helms and your elders are here to walk with you and to serve with you and to help you because the, the responsibility expands. That's the thing that in America we miss. We're not just responsible for ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we're responsible to each other. We're responsible for the poor and the orphans and the widows and the oppressed. The responsibility expands. And when you start really thinking about the implication and application of that truth, there needs to be a desperation so that when we come to the table, we understand and acknowledge that Jesus is the only hope for us to lean into that supernatural need because he's a supernatural solution. So the first thing I want to take away from this morning is the Lord's Supper reveals the truth about God's promises fulfilled in and through Jesus that bread and, and that cup is a declaration. It's a proclamation of Christ's body and Christ's blood given for many to have the marks and the application and the nourishment of a perfect Savior implemented and placed into our lives as his people. Now, we have to slow down and understand that the more we begin to understand this reminder and the reality of what it represents, then we've got to come to the table in a more guarded sort of way, and we've got to stop living our lives so flippantly, presuming upon the mercy and grace of God, thinking we're going to live however we want to live, do whatever we want to do, redefine God's truth, making our own truth for the sake of our own temporary happiness. The betrayal of Judas and the betrayal of Peter was a decision based on happiness. Walking that road that Jesus would walk 
Yes, it was orchestrated by God. Yes, it needed to happen that way. But ultimately, there was something within them that they chose to go an easier path. Following Jeezy is Jeezy. Following Jesus, don't follow Jeezy. I wouldn't recommend that. Three of you know what I'm talking about. Ask your teenager or millennial. Following Jesus is not easy. The calls of Christ are costly. When he invites you, he says, come and die so that you might live. That's really fun in the suburbs. Hey, all you comfortable people, come here and be comforted. No, the call of Christ is your comfort is killing you. The parable of the sower of the seed, the most scariest part in a wealthy area like this is not that we're just good soil because we give a lot of money. We're being choked out by the concerns about wealth and the worries of this life and wanting to redefine what God's truth is based upon our feeling. And therefore, we dethrone God in our mind and our heart. We sit on the throne and we command him what to do. We must repent. We must change the way we think, change the way we posture ourselves, and reorient ourselves towards a posture of neediness and humility. So the Lord's Supper reveals the truth about God's promises fulfilled in and through Jesus. You are not the promise keeper. God is. And only because you're following the one who kept the promises are you able to be faithful to yours. There will be days, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, where your marriage is not happy or satisfying. But the Word of God says in Ephesians chapter 5 that your marriage is a declaration about the gospel of Christ and his church. So there's more at stake than just your happiness. There's more at stake than just your joy. When you want to reinvent what marriage is, then you walk in a very cautious and dangerous territory because it's a covenant created by God for God. And when you start redefining that covenant, we then start declaring lies about God. And just so you're aware, that's called blasphemy. And many of us who are married or soon to be married, we're guilty of blaspheming that covenant. I know I was. I know at times I have been by making it more about my happiness than my life being postured towards God's holiness. But you see how this starts changing, how coming to the table, how we're being reminded of our need of God, it reveals the truth about God's promises fulfilled in and through Jesus. When you come to the table broken and needy, when you come to the table um, desperate, man, that's where God meets you. When you come flippantly and arrogantly, more about your list of what you did wrong or what you did right this week, it's more about you than about him. Communion is not a reflection of your righteousness. Communion is a declaration that without food, without sustenance, you die. The same is true spiritually. Had Jesus not done what he had done, you would be spiritually dead forever. You need that nourishment. You need to be reminded frequently of that need. Otherwise, you and your mind will become your own God or something or someone else will. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, it expands a little bit of this narrative and says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't do, say do this in remembrance of you. He doesn't say do this in remembrance of how well you did on your spiritual checklist. Amber alert. 
The Lord's saying amen. Keep telling them. All right. Is there any missiles coming our way or anything like that? <laughs> Sorry, too soon for the Hawaii joke. We good? No one's running out terrified, so leaving their clothes behind like John does later. All right, so it's a remembrance of Jesus. That's why it baffles me when people are like, you know what, the church just isn't doing it for me. Yikes. Well, if you find the perfect one, I said it before, leave. You'll ruin it. Second thing, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our profound need for God's rescue from our love of our sin. There's some sins that we hate, but there's a lot of sin that we love. But it's interesting how we then change the definition of what is sin and what's not. And so we become faithful to our desires and unfaithful to God. Become faithful to our desires and unfaithful to God. We diminish the authority of God's word to elevate the authority of our hearts and desires. I've done that. You've done that. We've done that. We've created a God in our own image. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of our profound need for God's rescue from our love of our sin, our love of ourself, our love of created things more than the creator. And so in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 32, the apostle Paul is bringing correction to the church in Corinth. I did a whole semester in 1 Corinthians in seminary, and one of the things that was very profound to me is that 1 Corinthians isn't descriptive, it's prescriptive and oftentimes corrective. So it's not necessarily how you should do, it's correction on why and what and when. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let the person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Think Judas. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Notice that. If we judged ourselves truly, therefore then there's no judgment. Why? Because Christ is the payment for what we actually see and confess. Confession's agreeing with God. When, when John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's saying if, if we agree with God that how we're living, what we're doing, what we're thinking, either solo or as a family or as a community, if we admit to God what we're doing is against his desire, he's faithful. He's faithful and just. He's right to do it, to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. Now, 
I've had pastor friends who have had couples living together that were living in sin because they're not in the covenant of marriage. They're making marriage on their own terms. Call them to repent, and then the next week, marry them during the worship service. They publicly repent. We've been living together, acting like we're married. We're not in the covenant of marriage. We need to repent. And they, the next week, they get their marriage license. They show up. They stay separate places for a week. They're married. Why? Because marriage is God's, not something you get to define. Drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I don't like feeling convicted, just to let you know that. Like, there's a few of you weird conviction junkies. Where you're like, oh man, Cease, can you bring it next week? I really need to feel convicted. Well, if you already know you need to feel convicted, you probably are. You should probably repent. But most people are like, I know I'm not doing, I'm not following the Lord, I'm not living the way I should live, I'm not obeying Jesus, I'm going to skip church for six months and it'll get better. Just a friendly memo, and this isn't about attendance, it doesn't work that way. Here's the scarier part, according to Romans 1, if you continue on your sin with no second thought or judgment, It says that God has turned you over to your wicked ways, meaning that you don't know God because God disciplines his children. Discipline isn't retribution. Jesus was the retribution. Discipline is correction, to put right on the right track, to get back on the right course. And so if you have no conviction over things that are blatantly, clearly sin in Scripture, I'm concerned for your soul. If you look at sin and say that's okay because that's our day and age, I'm concerned for you. We must stop living flippantly, acting like, ah, God's going to forgive us anyways. That's kind of a backwards approach. Because you have been forgiven of all things, how then should you live? Becoming slaves of sin and death again? No. For we have died to sin, so why should we live it in any longer? Romans 6. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What a grace. I've told the story before, Braylon, when she was three, she was a three-nager. She's my 11-year-old now, starting to see some of that come back, but she knows the Lord. But she's still a three-nager sometimes. She walks up to the iron, looks me in the eye, and is about to touch it. I'm like, do not do that. It will hurt. And she goes, <gasps> looks at me like I betrayed her. <laughs> I told you. She projects onto me like it's my fault. And we do that to the Lord. Why did you make me love this person? Why did you make me feel this way? Why, why did you, 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 you? That excuse and projection has been happening since Genesis 3. The woman you gave me made me do it, Adam says to God. The third thing, the Lord's Supper refocuses our hope of restoration from ourselves to Jesus. So why do we do it weekly? Because we have the tendency to focus our hope for faithfulness on ourselves. We do it weekly because the appropriate response to hearing the good news is to honor and return to the one who is the good news. To be reminded of our sustenance, our, our, our holiness, our faithfulness, our repentance is all contingent on his promise keeping. 
no matter what our circumstances, we have a tendency to look to ourselves and to look to others for our rescue. So weekly, we remind you, no, come back to the table. Come back to Jesus. Come be nourished. Come and be reminded. Come and declare your desperation. Come and ask God for what he has promised, which is himself. Come to the table. We don't do it to be trite or trendy or anything else. I mean, we have Hawaiian bread. Maybe we should get something bitter and gross. We're not like, ooh, snacks. But that we can come and remember the brutality of Christ in our place so that we can gather and we can remember and we can be given it, uh, us our hope. But as you come to the table, I want you to be thinking differently. We're not just coming for our individual need. We're coming together as a body reminded of their need too. And so when you look across the room at someone that may not have been nice to you or hasn't invited you to their clique or isn't part of the cool thing or hasn't liked your posts on Instagram lately or whatever it is that upsets you, as you come to the table, you're declaring your need and theirs. It's a normalizer. It's an evener. It brings equality to all. So as you come and we hear the verses that there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we're all one in Christ, that, that's the declaration as we come to the table. It's a unifying gesture. It's a necessary gesture. It's a declaration not only that we need it, but they need it, all of us need it. And that's why we come together on Sundays to do that. And lastly, it points us to the future. That until that day comes, he sustains us, he feeds us, he nourishes us, he keeps us, he is faithful, he will come back and come to the table to be reminded of that declaration because one day we will not have to feast any longer on the hope we will be in the presence of him. And until that time we come and declare, and until that time we come and gather, and until that time we do the work of an evangelist and we go and make disciples, and we make disciples in authentic community, bearing with each other's burdens, but hoping in one united person. His name is Jesus Christ. I don't come stand before you as a broken man. I come to you with you as a needy man needing Jesus. I need Jesus, my family does, my church family does. The church needs Jesus, and we forget Jesus, and we go a different way, and we start hoping in people and things, good created things, we make ultimate things, and we start defining things like a creator, and we must be careful. But the Lord's Supper reveals, reminds, and restores our hope in Jesus. It reveals who he is, therefore exposing who we are. It reminds us of the fact that we are not meant to sustain and to keep and to go on our own. And it restores our hope. Do you need your hope restored? Then come to the table. Do you need to acknowledge the fact that we need our hope restored? Then come to the table. Come and remember your only hope, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that our faithfulness isn't what makes you faithful. Your word says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that you are faithful even when we are faithless because you cannot deny yourself. You are faithful. And so, Father, I pray that we would search our hearts, our minds, that we would identify areas and pockets of unforgiveness, of pride, and 
of shame and of guilt, of redefinition of who you are, and that we would be humbled under the presence of who you are. Spirit of God, I pray in your kindness that you would bring repentance. Your word teaches that it's in your kindness that leads us to repentance. Oh, Father, thank you for your patience with us, your kindness towards us, this constant beckoning to come back and remember your faithfulness. Lord, may we be a people that are anchored and sold out to the fact that you are our only hope. And so, Father, as we continue this time of worship by coming to the table, by singing songs, by giving an offering, and afterwards by greeting one another and going out, may we go out with our eyes lifted to the hill where our hope comes from. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.